This is our sixth week in our series in the book of Galatians. And uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, a church that he planted. And he had been hearing reports that a group of Jewish believers that we refer to as the Judaizers had come and challenged his authority as an apostle. And they had come to this church that he had planted, that he had loved, that he had preached to, and challenged the content of his message. This was upsetting to Paul, and so he's writing a letter in his defense, and he's writing a letter reminding them of the truths that he had brought to them. And the key idea that we've been learning here, this key idea could seem like a small thing. In fact, there have been some people who have talked to me afterwards. It seems like a very subtle distinction. But what we're finding out is this is more than just a subtle distinction that the Judaizers were bringing. They were bringing a different, a fundamentally different message. And so Paul is writing this letter, defending his authority as an apostle and defending the content of his message to the church in Galatia. The key idea that we are justified, in other words, we're made right before God, not by works of the law, but we're justified by faith in Jesus. That's the key idea. Paul is contrasting the law with faith as a means to being right before God. Last week, Mike looked at the law, talked about what it is and how we can think rightly about it. So today we are going to look at faith and try to understand what it is and how we can think rightly about it. And so let me pray for us. Father, we just pray that you would come by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you that in in your hands, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, your Word has the power to transform our lives. And so as we enter into this time, we recognize the power of your Word and we submit to the work of your Holy Spirit in our heart soften ourselves and ready ourselves to hear from you that we might be different as we leave, that we might live differently. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1800s, the mid-1800s, there was a character that became quite famous. This is long before there were any viral YouTubes. And this is an individual whose reputation became viral. And he was a tightrope walker. He put on a series of uh, events that were spectacular. And these events started to spread throughout the country and and his reputation grew. In fact, uh, right here is a a cartoon of Abraham Lincoln. Um, This man's name was Charles Blondin. And uh, In one of Abraham Lincoln's speeches, he actually referred to Blondin and said, I am like Charles Blondin walking across a tightrope, across the the treacherous Niagara Falls of the dangers that are besetting our nation. And I'm carrying in a wheelbarrow all that's precious to us as a nation. And this was a, a, a cartoon that was drawn after Lincoln had done this speech. So Blondin, most famously had set up a tightrope 1,100 feet across the Niagara Falls and on a number of occasions traversed that tightrope over the falls. 
In fact, he became so confident that he began doing tricks. He walked across it backwards. He walked across it blindfolded. He traversed the falls on stilts. <laughs> this is an actual um, uh, etching from that time illustrating Charles Blondin walking on stilts across the Niagara Falls. In fact, on one occasion, halfway through, he sat down in the middle of the rope and cooked and ate an omelet. <laughs> Most famously, he was showing his agility to a crowd. And he said to the crowd of people, after he had gotten there and back, he said, how many of you believe that I could carry an individual on my back across Niagara Falls? And the crowd just went crazy. They all cheered and they were, they were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. And they all believed that he could do it. You can imagine what his next question was. <laughs> Who will volunteer? And the crowd went silent. But there was one man who, in a supreme act of faith, came forward and was carried by Blondin across the falls. This is an actual picture of Charles Blondin walking across the Niagara Falls with a volunteer on his back. Now, clearly, the people in the audience that day believed that Blondin could make it across the falls. He'd shown his, his abilities but only one of them put their trust in that fact. That's faith. It's not giving assent to a belief. It's not merely identifying with a set of doctrines or principles. A lot of times we can think, here's a, set, here's a statement of faith, a series of points that we can believe as Christians. And if I just say, I believe those, then I'm in, I'm a Christian. But I think what we're going to see today is that faith may involve that, yes, but it is not merely that. Faith is something much more than mere intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. In fact, we're going to use three words this morning to describe what faith is in the Scriptures. And those words are trust, dependence, and surrender I've never done this as a preacher, but I've seen it done. Say it with me. Trust, dependence, and surrender. That felt good, actually. Yeah, I might have to do that more often. And we see all three of those things in the illustration with Charles Blondin. We see trust. He trusted that volunteer, trusted Blondin completely. He trusted in his ability and adequacy to carry him across to the other side. We see dependence. He knew that he could not do it on his own. And so he totally depended on Charles Blondin to carry him, to take him across the dangerous falls. And we see surrender. Because he trusted in Blondin's abilities, and because he depended on him 100% to take him across the falls, he surrendered to the offer. And he put his life in Blondin's hands. Now, before I look at the way that Paul speaks of faith in Galatians, we're going to take a look at the way that the Bible defines it. And we're going to look at three different things. First of all, we're going to look at the fact that faith is not mere lip service. Let's look at James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James writes, What good is it, my brethren, 
if someone says that they have faith but have no works. You see, what James is doing here is he's actually teaching us about faith. A lot of times this passage is looked at as teaching about good works, and it certainly does that as well. But I think primarily this passage is helping us to understand what true faith is and what false faith is. So James says, what good is it, my brethren, if someone says that they have faith, but they have no works? In other words, if someone gives mere lip service to faith. Can that faith save them? And the answer James is giving is no. Mere lip service to faith is not what saves us. And then he gives an illustration of this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In other words, a profession... Now, you could look at this passage and say, isn't this in contrast to what Paul is saying, right, in the book of Galatians? This passage that we just read in, or that we just talked about in Galatians? But in fact, it's not, because what James is doing is he's saying, this is real faith, and this is false faith. He's saying, could this mere lip service to faith save you? No, because faith, by its very nature, results in good works. Faith, by, by its very nature, results in the life of Jesus flowing from us like rivers of living water. And so James is saying, when we have faith, we have good works. That results naturally. The second thing I want to say is that faith is not merely cognitive belief. Faith is not merely head belief. Certainly there are some things that we need to believe cognitively. But faith is not merely head belief or cognitive belief. Let's look at James chapter 2. This is uh, just a few verses later, a couple of verses later than the verses that we just looked at. And James says again, you believe that, that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If what we're talking about is mere cognitive assent to a set of truths, James is saying, even the demons do that. The demons believe in God, right? But faith is something different than merely believing cognitively. You know, the, the, the most knowledgeable biblical scholars at the time that Jesus was walking on the earth were the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet those were not the ones that Jesus pointed out when he said, there's faith. There were times when Jesus saw what he was looking for and he would point it out and he would say, there it is. That's the heart disposition that I'm looking for. That's faith. And who was he pointing to? Was it the people who knew the most about the Bible? It was a centurion who believed that all Jesus had to do was say the word and his slave that he loved would be healed. It was a woman who touched the hem of his garment, believing that all she needed to do because this man 
was clearly God, the Messiah. All she needed to do was reach out and touch the hem of his garment and she would be healed. It was a Samaritan leper who, after being healed, went back to Jesus to give glory to God, recognizing it was God who brought healing to me. It was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. It was a woman who, when Jesus was dining in the home of a Pharisee, came and washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and then anointed his feet with perfume. In all of those instances, Jesus said, this is faith. He called it by name. He said, this is faith. It was in none of those examples where people who were knowledgeable about the scriptures, but they exhibited a heart disposition that Jesus saw and took note of and called it faith. It was a heart disposition that he was looking for, a heart disposition of trust, dependence, and surrender. The last thing that I want to say is that faith is contrasted with sight in the scriptures as well. A classic passage about faith is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 2 Corinthians 4 also speaks of where our eyes are. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us what I'm actually talking about here is faith. He says, therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. And then a few verses later, in chapter 5, he talks a little bit more about eternal perspective, and then he says, For we live by faith and not by sight. All right, so we saw faith is not mere lip service. Faith is not mere head belief. And faith is often contrasted in the scriptures with what we see on the surface, seeing something else. All right, so now let's look at what Galatians has to say about faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, Paul has just mentioned that, by the way, I'm a Jew as well, right? I'm, I'm talking about what these other Jewish believers were telling you and, and trying to correct it. But by the way, I am also a Jew. And he says, so we Jews too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, let's leave that passage up for a while and let's talk first about this word justified. What do we mean by that? Justification is a legal term. It means that we, if we're justified, it, it, it is referring to standing before a judge and being found innocent. It's saying we, we could stand before a judge and be found blameless in that situation. Now, let's also think, though, about the common use of the term justified. 
What, do, what would you mean if you said, I was justified in my actions? I was justified in my actions. It means that although your actions might technically have broken a rule or may have been questionable under a different set of circumstances, considering the particular circumstances surrounding your actions, your actions were warranted. They were defensible, excusable, even appropriate in that situation. So you should not be judged as the guilty party. You were blameless in your actions. So similarly, the biblical definition of justification has both of those aspects to it. The legal, standing before a judge, innocent, and the common use of the word. It means that although each one of us has fallen short of God's laws, each one of us has broken his laws. Under these particular circumstances, God looks at us and sees us as blameless and righteous. We stand before God as our judge, and we're seen as righteous. What? What? <laughs> How is that possible under any set of circumstances, right? What kinds of circumstances could we possibly stand before God and be seen as blameless? as innocent. This is impossible. It's like, it's like traversing the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. What circumstances could possibly cause God to see us as blameless? Well, Paul is saying here, it is certainly not based on your ability to follow the law. He's saying, under those circumstances, Every one of us is guilty. We all stand before God as our judge, having fallen short. So there is no way under those circumstances of being under the law that anyone could be justified. But Paul's saying there is a way. There's a way you could be justified. Here are the circumstances under which you could be justified. It's the gospel. It's the message that Paul had brought to them in the first place, the one that's being distorted now by the Jews. He's saying these are the circumstances under which, the only circumstances under which, you could stand before God and be seen as innocent. And it is this, that God came to us as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a blameless life, and subjected himself to our punishment, a death on the cross, so that a great exchange could be taken place, so that through that sacrificial death of Christ, our sin would be laid on him, and his righteousness would be credited to us. Under those circumstances and those circumstances alone, Paul is saying, could any of us stand before God and be seen as blameless? Well, how is that exchange applied to us? Paul says it's by faith. And remember, what Paul means when he says faith is trust, dependence, and surrender. Trusting in him. 
I can't be justified based on my own actions. Depending on him, it's only through your work on the cross that I can be justified and surrendering to him. So I put my life and my eternal destiny in your hands. I want to take a a note of of one other thing in this passage in in Galatians 2.16 because this is such a key passage. It's the main one that we're going to just be camping on right now. Um, There's one other observation that I want to make, and that is that although we said that faith is contrasted with sight in the Scriptures, we are not talking about a blind faith. We're talking about a faith in something particular. You'll notice that whenever the word faith is used in the Bible to talk about our justification, whenever it's used in the Bible to talk about our justification, it will always be followed by another phrase. What's that phrase that it's always followed by? In Christ Jesus. Faith in the cross of Christ or in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. The faith is always in a trustworthy object of our faith. Sometimes people might think it's the faith that's important. It's not so much what you put your faith in, it's that you have faith in something. Just have faith in something, and that will be good enough. Let's go back to the tightrope illustration for a moment. Let's say that that volunteer had said, yes, I'll volunteer, but... Can I choose the person who carries me over? Charles Blondin would have said, excuse me? <laughs> who, who are you going to choose besides me? Like, is there somebody else who could carry you over? Well, I, I don't know you, right? And I'm here with my grandmother, my 93-year-old grandmother, and I've always been able to depend on her. She's always been there for me. I know her. I would feel more comfortable if I went over on her shoulders. People would have thought he'd gone mad, right? That he'd lost his mind. Now, this illustration in no way is meant to demean 93-year-old grandmothers. I want, I want you to know that, right? Particularly our most senior and most wise, Edna. You all know Edna, right? She is amazing. Nine, she, she is 94. Now, if... Yeah. Now, if, if the volunteer had said um, that they trusted in Edna, I think Edna probably could have done it. But, but his grandmother was not in as good a shape as Edna is. She had kind of let herself go. And so no matter how much faith this guy had in his grandmother, she was not going to be able to take him across the falls. You see, it is not just faith believing hard enough that is going to make it work. It has to be in a trustworthy object. You know, Jim Jones, I think, was probably a very dynamic, charismatic, intelligent speaker. But he was not a good object of faith for salvation, was he? Right? It is not faith in anything. It is faith in the one circumstance that can cause us to be seen as righteous before God. Let's look at another key passage in this section, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, 
And, and, th- and this, again, is about surrender, dependence, and trust. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul is talking about two different concepts, being saved by faith and living by faith. He's saying we cannot be justified before God by ourselves and we certainly cannot live as righteous by ourselves. We're saved by faith and we live by faith. Surrendering to him, depending on his life to carry us, depending on his power in us. We have to depend on him. Let's go back to that tightrope for a second. What if that volunteer had gone on to Charles Blondin's back, Blondin's back and halfway through said, you know, I know I said that I, that I trusted you to take me across, but I actually think at this point I would do a better job myself. You're a little wobbly. I'm feeling a little insecure. I'm, I'm going to take it from here. If you don't mind, could you let me off your back? And I'll go ahead and take it from here. I got it. Again, they would have thought, this guy has left his senses. He has gone mad. He's taken his life into his own hands. Well, that's exactly Paul's reaction to the Galatians. If we look now at Galatians chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying, if you were justified by faith and if you received the Spirit by faith, then why on earth would you think that from this point on you can take it yourselves? Galatians 3.15, the final verse of this section, shows us where Paul is headed in the rest of the book. He's showing us that this idea, idea of living by faith, trust, dependence, and surrender to the life of Jesus in us, right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This idea is synonymous with where Paul is just about to go to talk about the life of the Spirit. That is the faith walk. That is the life of faith. He redeemed us for this reason, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, Living by faith is life in the Spirit. It is depending on the life of Jesus in us. How is righteousness produced in us? How are we seen as righteous before God? Only through the circumstances of Christ's death on the cross. Well, then what about good works? 
Aren't we supposed to participate in good works? Those are produced by the fact that we're trusting, depending, and surrendering to him by faith. His life is in us, producing good works. When we see these passages in that light, these passages in Galatians 5 that we're going to be getting to a little bit later make total sense. Let's look at them quickly. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness which we hope for. You see that? By the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for righteousness to be produced in us. Right? Let's keep looking. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Keep going. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You see, this was not a subtle distinction that Paul was making. He's saying this is a foundational difference in the way that we live the Christian life. It is faith. Not you doing it yourselves. You can't. It's you moment by moment depending on Jesus. And go on. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the crown jewel in the whole book of Galatians that's coming um, in this series is Galatians 2, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you all know what today is? what Sunday this is? It's Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday that we remember that moment when the church came alive. When suddenly the life of Jesus burst forth in these men and women. When all of a sudden these followers of Jesus who were just simply saying, Whatever he has, whoever he is, that's what we need. He's who we want to follow. All of a sudden, his life burst forth in them and the church was birthed. This is the life of faith. It's moment by moment, depending on the Holy Spirit in us. I've got um, twin girls and they have been teenagers for a week and a half. In number, they have been, numerically, they have been teenagers for a week and a half. This has been coming for a couple of years. They've been teenagers for a couple of years now. Um, And I'm not just saying that this week and a half has felt like two years. It has. (laughs) But I'm realizing that, that stuff just flies out of my mouth. Dad stuff just flies out of my mouth, right? Like I, they, they say something about something that they're going through at school, and I want to say, oh, honey, you shouldn't feel that way because of this and this and this, rather than saying, oh, my gosh, yeah, tell me about that. Like, how did that feel? Oh, my, that, that must have been really hard, right? The dad stuff just, like, comes. It just, I, I don't know. It, the, in my flesh, what I say is dad stuff, right? Um, so what I've been doing lately is I, I arrive home in my car 
and I spend five minutes just saying, Jesus, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to say. I, I say the wrong things. I need you to live in me. I need to no longer live. I need Christ to live in me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me with your life. Fill me with your words. Help me, because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this. I'm lost. I need you. This is faith. What are the three words? Trust, dependence, and surrender. It's trusting in him and his life. Depending on him to live in us and surrendering our life to him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know, I could say this stool is a sturdy stool. I like that stool. I'm sure it could hold me and walk away, right? But faith is saying, no. Jesus is dependable. He is worthy of my life. I can trust in him. I can surrender to him. I can depend on him. He will carry me through. His life in me is the only way that I can do this. That was just an illustration, a sample of what faith is. A stool sample. Um, I just cannot believe I just said that. Why did I? See, these things, these dad, it's dad stuff, right? It just flows out of me. I cannot, and I cannot believe that you guys laughed at that. Here's the deal. Every moment, we have to depend on the life of Jesus in us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Lord, we ask that that would be true of us, that we would be a people who trust, depend, and surrender to you. That we would be a people through whom the life of Jesus would would brim forth and overflow into the lives of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.